So we're beginning a new series this morning entitled Living Restoration. We're going to be in the Beatitudes. Before we get there, let's just give a bit of a recap of where we've been so far this year in Oasis. We began the year in the first three chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And there we saw that the three-person God of the Bible is a God of love, a good God who created a good home, placing us in it to enjoy and to look after it as his image bearers. And we saw that home is broken. That our earliest ancestors, human beings, we pulled away from God, believing the lie that he's withholding some good from us, and that we must therefore look outside of God to something else and take that good for ourselves. And it's a lie with devastatingly dehumanizing effects because we're created for God. And so, as Glenn Scrivener puts it, by pulling away from God, who is love and light and life, what you are left with is disconnection and darkness and death. But right from the beginning, we saw that God committed to restoring home, determined to bring us back to himself, undoing our self-destruction. And so at Easter time, we looked at home restored, how in Jesus, God has acted decisively for us to restore all things. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has brought about new creation. He is the word who goes forth from the Father, just like in the beginning, bringing life and light and revelation of the love of God. And at the cross, he destroyed in himself everything that would destroy us, sin and death and evil, in order that in him we may again know all of the goodness of God, freely given, not withheld from us. As we hear his voice and follow him as the good shepherd, he leads us into all restoration, which Gene so excellently unpacked for us last week. New creation has begun. One day, all things will be renewed in the goodness of God. For now, we're living in the times between the comings of Christ. He has come, he will come. Restoration has begun. One day, it will be brought to completion. It is now and it is not yet. So that brings us to living restoration, which is where we are in this new series. You know, the good news about Christ is alive with power by the Holy Spirit. What we have is a living message about a living Lord and Savior. It is good news. It's gospel. It's an announcement. And that gospel is at work in us who hear this message with faith to restore us. His living presence is in the announcement of the gospel. So the living presence of God is here with us right now. There is living restoration in that sense, but also restoration is to be lived. What does that look like? How, how do we enjoy living restoration? Well, this is where we're going to be looking at the Bible over the next few months to answer those questions. We'll be doing that by opening, by, by focusing on the opening words of the most famous sermon ever spoken, the Sermon on the Mount. And those first few words, the famous words called the Beatitudes. But just as a quick spoiler alert, here's what we're going to see over the next few months. We're going to see that living restoration looks like depending upon the faithfulness of God. Now, the Beatitudes are found in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. They kick-start the Sermon on the Mount. 
And all four gospel writers have a particular emphasis or particular aims that they're wanting to bring across as they present Jesus to us. And Matthew wrote his gospel in large part for a Jewish audience, not just for them, but in large part for a church which had a, la- had a large Jewish congregation within it, with Jewish believers in mind. And chapters 1 to 5 of Matthew are deliberately structured in such a way as to emphasize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the true Israel. Now, Israel were the people of God, inheritors of the promise given to Abraham that through them God would bless all the nations of the world. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. He is the promised seed. He is the true Israel, the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. So in chapters 1 to 5 of his gospel, Matthew sets out events in the life of Jesus deliberately to show that he is reliving and perfecting the story of Israel, which is good news for all people. See, the story of Israel um, begins, as will come up on the screen, with a promise of God spoken to create a people for himself. The promise comes to bring a people to himself. And then that people is taken into um, Egypt because of a threat, famine time. And so in the time of Joseph, the people of Israel are taken into Egypt. And then they're called out of Egypt and out of the slavery and the oppression within Egypt and taken through the waters of the Red Sea and then into the wilderness where there's a time of testing. Uh, Will they trust the word of God? And then they're brought to a mountain where the covenant of God is spoken over them. Covenant words. And then what we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus is born on the back of a promise that comes to Mary. A promise worded to her. And then Jesus, in early in his life, is taken into Egypt on the, on the back of a threat. And then called out of Egypt. And in chapter three of uh, Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus taken through the waters of baptism and then into the wilderness in chapter four, where he too has a time of testing. And unlike Israel, he trusts the Lord, his God. And then in chapter five, we join Jesus at the side of a mountain where he's announcing the new covenant of the Lord, the new covenant promises. Jesus has come to relive and perfect the story of Israel, putting it right And yet the covenant announcements of Jesus are different to Moses, as we shall see. Moses gave the law, and Jesus fulfills it. This is where we're at as we join Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel. He's just been healing the sick and the afflicted, proclaiming the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. And he's on a mountainside, and surrounded by his disciples and by a very large crowd. In fact, the kind of up and down of the hillside would provide the kind of acoustics possible for lots of people to be able to hear him. And we're talking about acoustics not even Phil Henley could master, (laughs) or or Keith Upton for that matter. That's where we're joining him. So why don't we pick up the Bible and we're going to read from chapter 5 of Matthew. It says, Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those are the Beatitudes. Now, what are Beatitudes? Well, it's slightly unfortunate that the word sounds like the English word for attitude, because it's quite easy to turn these statements into a list of attitudes that you need to start working on in order to get something, to get a blessing. If you try hard, become like this, you might get that. Like saying to my my daughter, if you tidy your bedroom, you may be able to have some of your chocolate Easter egg which, as it turns out, I currently am enjoying quite nicely while her room remains untidy. (laughs) But I'm not the only parent who does that. (laughs) Don't judge me. If this, then that. But that would be missing the point altogether. These are not so much instructions as they are announcements. Jesus is announcing the conditions in which God's kingdom comes. Tom Wright explains that these blessings that Jesus is announcing are not saying, try hard to behave like this. They are saying, people who are already like that are in good shape. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the merciful, the hungry, etc. These are in good shape. Why? Because these announcements are about the faithfulness of God. God's work on our behalf. The word beatitude comes from the Latin beatus, meaning blessed or happy. But scholar R.T. France explains that there are some translation difficulties with the Greek word found at the beginning of each of the Beatitudes statements. So the word commonly translated as blessed are, the poor in spirit, the the meek, etc., is not very easy to translate. The word blessed is not quite right because it has too many theological overtones. Um, The Greek word used for God's blessing is usually different to this one. So others have said, well, maybe happy are the poor in spirit, happy are the meek. But that's not quite right as well, because that has too much of a psychological connotation. What's not being said is that these people necessarily feel happy, but they're in a happy state. So others have said, well, fortunate are the poor in spirit, fortunate are the meek. In fact, Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, summarizes the Beatitudes by saying, lucky are the unlucky. But again, maybe that's got too much of a kind of chance overtone. The point is that the Beatitudes are affirming particular conditions as the ones in which the kingdom of God comes. Like saying, good for you, poor in spirit. Good for you, meek. We have a hard time making sense of that. See, the descriptors listed in the Beatitudes do not immediately strike us as a happy state to be in, do they? When you think about what you're hoping for in life, I'm, I'm not sure many will be thinking poor, persecuted, mourning, hungry. That's kind of what I'm wanting. In fact, this is certainly not what our culture celebrates. We live in a world that prizes the exact opposite to these things. Always has. Survival of the fittest. We live in a world where actually every year 
there's a list produced of the wealthiest people and of the most successful people, of the powerful people, of the gorgeous people. You know, top 10 millionaires, top 10 entrepreneurs, top 10 stunners. The people who get up and on in the world tend not to look much like those described in the Beatitudes. And so the Anglican scholar J.B. Phillips wrote alternative Beatitudes that seem to fit the world around us. He says, happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are those who complain, for they get their way in the end. Isn't that the truth? Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. The stronger, the wealthier, the bigger, the more impressive, the more resilient, the more powerful. They are the blessed ones according to the world. They're the ones who make the covers of magazines and newspapers, whose images are on billboards or TV adverts. They're the lucky ones. Be like them. They're the ones in a good state, the world says. And, and you know, the sad reality is even this thinking can come into the church as well. We think... The churches in the good state are the really big ones, the wealthy ones, the influential ones, the ones with great buildings and great sound systems. The blessed life that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes just cuts against our natural expectations. According to Jesus, those in a good position are the strugglers, the no-hopers, the overlooked, the unimpressive, the down-and-outs, starting with the poor in spirit. What does Jesus mean by poor in spirit? Well, the poor in spirit are those who know they are desperately needy. Like my friend Andrew Gordon, as he was singing earlier today. They are not self-assured, self-confident, impressed with themselves. They don't go around talking themselves up, saying things like, I am the greatest. They don't necessarily go around talking themselves down, they just don't talk about themselves so much. They know they have no spiritual resources to speak of within themselves, nothing impressive to present to God. The poor in spirit feel the distance between Mount Sinai and them. They hear Moses speak from that first mountain and they feel their lack. They know that they have not loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength or neighbor as self, which summarizes the law and the prophets. They're spiritually empty. They're the poor in spirit. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, paraphrases by saying, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. The poor in spirit are at the end of their rope. They're, they're the strugglers. They're the ones who can't do life, who can't do Christianity, not in themselves. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Precisely because the kingdom of heaven is not something you do. It's not something you pull yourself up to. It comes down to you. Not earned, not deserved, but given. It's priceless. It's a pearl of great price. Worth selling everything for. Because it's priceless. It's the gift of God. Of course you can't earn it. 
How blessed are those who know their needs is another way of saying this beatitude. Are you needy? I am. Are you a struggler? That's me. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Be careful if you feel that actually you're in control and doing pretty well. Be careful if you feel like you're making your own way in life. I was once at a barbecue and chatting to a very high-powered judge. And we were talking about God. And he said he was a believer. But just started telling me about how actually he feels like he's gotten really well without God in life. He hasn't really needed God. Actually, he feels like he's done everything himself. And he hasn't got much of a need for God. Be careful. Be warned. Be warned if you feel self-sufficient, if you think you're spiritually impressive. Be warned if you look at those around you and feel superior. The kingdom is closed to the proud and self-assured. If you look to your knowledge or your prayers or your gifting or your success or your reputation or even your spiritual experiences as the source of your confidence, then be warned. Because the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. You see, the poor in spirit knows that their, their need can only be met outside of themselves, not found by looking within. It must be received from outside. And the reality is we are all poor in spirit, objectively, all needy, all spiritually empty of ourselves, but those who refuse to realize it refuse the kingdom of heaven. But at the very same time, as you realize your spiritual poverty and neediness, you find yourself simultaneously the intended recipient of the gracious promise of God. Amen. Happens at the same time. No sooner do you perceive that you are among the strugglers and the spiritual no-hopers, do you hear the announcement, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not theirs could be if they do X, Y, and Z. No, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As you are confronted with your own inadequacy, you are already standing in the grace of God. The kingdom is yours. You don't climb up to it. It comes down to you, a gift. I'm daily confronted with my poverty of spirit and great neediness. I, I can't do life on my own resources. I know that. But there have been times in my life where I've been kind of clobbered over the head with my sense of poverty of spirit. One of those times was when I arrived at university. And when I arrived at university as a kind of 18-year-old skinny little fella, I was just overwhelmed and really just aware of a sense of lostness. Um, not just because I was in a new place and new people and lots of new things going on, which I was finding hard to cope with, but just a sense of, God, are you really there and what do you think of me? Just aware of how far I've, I've fallen from who God is. Just aware of my spiritual poverty. And I remember in the first couple of weeks of university, I, I, back in those days, we used to have a minibus that took students to Oasis. And I, it was one of my first weeks going to Oasis. I went to the meeting point for the minibus, and I was just tearful. That was commonplace in that first year for me just aware of my brokenness, and reading the Bible as I went along, and I came across these Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and it pierced me, because I was the poor in spirit, that's me, 
And even as I was so aware I didn't need any convincing of my poverty of spirit, a blessing is being announced over me, the kingdom given. This is good news for the depressed. Your blessedness is not dependent upon your emotional or psychological state. It's not dependent upon your ability to feel it. It's entirely dependent upon the faithfulness of God. So give voice to your poverty of spirit before God. And what you'll find is it's turned into praise and worship. This psalm has already been referenced. Psalm 42 is a voicing of poverty of spirit. As the psalmist says, as the deer pants for for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my food day and night. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Put your hope in God, my Savior and my God. That sounds like the poor in spirit to whom the kingdom belongs. Do you know, there's a chap called William Cowper. He was an 18th century poet. He was actually a contemporary and a friend of William Wilberforce and of John Newton, who who wrote Amazing Grace. And and William Cowper was a phenomenal poet. Wrote um, many hymns which have had an enduring impact on the church, and all his life he struggled with depression. He was committed to an asylum on more than one occasion. A man who's so desperately aware of his poverty of spirit. John Newton was a good friend to him and pastored him, encouraged him constantly. This man, poor in spirit, to him belonged the kingdom of heaven. And he's had an enduring influence on the church in helping us to understand the goodness and the grace of God. Not that he ever got out of that sense of struggle with his own psychological state. But this is not just for those who struggle with depression. Let me tell you a bit about my brother, Joel. Joel um, has got Down syndrome and many other medical conditions. Joel is very much aware of his need. Joel is very dependent. He, he needs to be looked after. He, he, he is not self-sufficient at all. He's not self-obsessed at all, actually. He loves receiving from other people. And, and through other people... God has cared for Joel in many different ways. And Joel loves to receive that. And Joel loves people and Joel loves God. He spends most of his... We go on holiday often with, with Joel and my family and, and he'll often be singing kind of old school worship songs all the time. And after a while, you just, you just want him to stop because, <laughs> you know, he's, I love him, but his singing is not really the soundtrack you want all holiday. Um, <laughs> But it's just coming out of him, and he's, he loves God, and he loves people. Actually, Joel's one of those people who is incredibly generous in that when you spend time with him, you just, you just love being with him. He's just so generous with himself. He's full of life, full of joy. Joel is poor in spirit and the possessor of the kingdom of heaven. It's not that he understands everything. It's that his life is placed in the hands of a faithful God who's at work through him. But this is not even just for those who, in the eyes of the world, have no recognizable success. Martin Luther King, let's take him for example, the great civil rights movement leader. Martin Luther King was hugely gifted, massive capacity, 
incredibly eloquent. He was a man with, with amazing leadership, a man who God used to right an incredible wrong, an injustice, or at least to begin to. It's not, it's not complete at all. But to challenge the powers. Martin Luther King is, in, is in, impressive. He's a household name. He's poor in spirit. He, he knew desperately his need of God. He, he knew desperately that he couldn't do it in his own resources. The poor in spirit is not describing a particular mood or social status or educational background. It's describing those who know that their need is greater than their resources. Those who humbly confess their dependence upon God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the dependent, the needy, the strugglers. Is that you? Happy state that you're in. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because that blessed state is defined by the promise. It's not that it's really good to be poor in spirit in and of itself. It's because the promise that comes. Because your state is good because God is faithful. Because God is generous. Yours is the kingdom of heaven because God is giver. And he freely gives himself to us in Christ. So poverty of spirit is not about beating yourself up, and it's not about moping around, it's about looking outside of yourself and seeing him who freely gives the kingdom of heaven, who stands on a mountainside and announces this good news of the kingdom, Jesus. He came to rewrite our story in himself. He relived and perfected the story of Israel. He relived and perfected the story of humanity. That's why he's called in 1 Corinthians the second Adam, the beginning of the new humanity. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, just after the Beatitudes, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's come to fill up in himself the life of obedience that none of us have or can perform. His announcement so different to that of Moses on the other mountain in Mount Sinai. We, the sinful and self-obsessed, stand poor in spirit against the demands given in the law of Moses. But Jesus, from the mountain Galilee, announces the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in him. Again, Glenn Scrivener gives a helpful analogy for us to understand this. He says, if I'm in the, if I'm in the pub and someone hands me a pint glass, that can mean one of two things. The glass is empty, it means it's my round. I've got to pay for this, fill it up, and and I owe you something. I'm going to give it to you. But if the glass comes to me full, then it's a gift. So I get to drink and enjoy the benefits of. Jesus has filled up the law. And Jesus is given to you that you might take hold of him And be nourished by him. And enter into the life of God, the good life of loving God and of loving people. Not by your striving as if you owe something, but by the grace of God that sustains. To enjoy loving God and knowing his love for you, which precedes your love for him. And so in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake 
he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Filled up. The kingdom is given in Christ as a gift. He became poor, joining us in our poverty and taking that all the way to the cross so that we might be lifted up in him and joined to him by faith. Now I am his and he is mine. My poverty is his, his richness is mine. Join to Christ, the new Adam, the new humanity. And so Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever gains I had, I now consider them lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Everything's rubbish compared to knowing him. The poor in spirit know that. The poor in spirit hear that the Son of God is freely given and the announcement is good news. The poor in spirit want the King of heaven. And so to the poor in spirit belongs the kingdom of heaven. Do do you want Jesus? Even as you're hearing of him, do you want him? If you want him, he's yours. He's yours, already given. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, this changes the way that we respond to poverty in all its forms as we understand this more. There are many homeless people in our city. Every, every day I come across a couple of homeless people. A, a, a recent news article just talked about how over the last 10 years the, um, the funding for homelessness has just been slashed. And we're seeing the corresponding rise in homelessness. There are many people dependent on food banks, many struggling to get by. And understanding our poverty in spirit and the grace and the the generosity of God changes the way that we see people who themselves are desperately poor. They're not so different to me or you. That could easily have been you or me. Living restoration involves recognizing ourselves in the poor of the city. Not patronizing them, not judging them, not withholding compassion and friendship, not making the assumption that this must have been because of something they did. Loving them, connecting with them, knowing them, knowing their names, providing for them, seeing Christ in them, who says, whatever you did for the least of one of my brethren, you did unto me. His announcement is certainly good news for the poor. You know, I, Chloe, over the um, Easter holidays, was watching the railway children. And, um, and she said to me, Daddy, are we poor? I said, no, no, we're not poor. But we're not rich, are we, Daddy? No, we're not rich. And she said, good. I said, oh, why do you say that? Well, if you're rich, you just want more and more and more. So I don't want to be rich. And she said, but I don't want to be poor either, because then we don't have enough to survive on and nothing to give away. I want to be in the middle. <laughs> so I can give away. I thought that was profound. Yes. Now, it's not always that profound. <laughs> Sometimes it's profoundly annoying, well, it comes out of Chloe. But, um, I'm sure she'd say the same about me, to be fair, and she'd be right. Um, understanding our poverty of spirit and receiving the riches of Christ enables us to be generous, like my brother Joel, even though he's got very little that the world would say is valuable. He is generous and he's having an impact on everyone around him. 
Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. You. Are you poor in spirit this morning? Are you needy? Is life too much for you? Is your need greater than your resources? Is holiness beyond your grasp? Blessed are you, poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Look outside yourself. Look to Jesus, who fulfills the law and the prophets and is given so that we may enjoy his life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus is freely given and in him is every blessing. Why don't we stand? I'm just going to pray for us. I'm so encouraged when what, what has been prepared to be delivered matches up with what's come through in worship spontaneously. God wants us to hear this. God wants us to hear again the upside-down nature of his kingdom. To challenge the way that we look at the world and other people and ourselves what we see is valuable. To understand that our poverty of spirit is a blessed state because the Lord is given and the Lord is faithful. What are the Beatitudes about? They're about the faithfulness of God. Maybe we just close our eyes then and just be open to the Lord wanting to communicate his faithfulness to you. There might be some here who You've been undone by this because you've realized you've been proud and you've been closed off and you've been self-sufficient and the Lord is convicting you in order to restore you, in order that you might know him as your treasure. Not to bring condemnation and exclusion, but to invite in. Maybe you're here thinking, I I struggle with depression. Maybe you're thinking, I am so insignificant in what I do. I want you to hear the Lord's voice to you, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See your Lord. See your Savior. See the bread of life who is given to you. And again, be filled up in him. He's yours. If you have any desire for him, that's the work of the Spirit. He's yours. Rest in him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the abundance of your gift in giving us your son. We can see what kind of love you've lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, united to the Son of God. And I thank you communicate that to us, Almighty Father, by your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit, would you come now to each and every person in this room and cause Christ to increase in us. May we decrease that he might increase. And Jesus, would you come and touch tender hearts, those who are feeling bruised and broken. 
would you come with your healing and restoring hand that we might feast upon you afresh. And I pray that you would cause this faith to be nourished and to grow as we celebrate Jesus, the gift of God, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus who speaks a better word, Jesus freely given even to us. Father, we love you, we praise you, we adore you. We give ourselves and put ourselves in your hands again. And we pray for the poor of our city, Lord, for justice. And would you help us to know how we can play our part in meeting the needs that are so evidently there. And through that, may the goodness of God be known, that they might see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.